Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Today, we have a sort of fun topic that we're going to talk about, what therapists worry about. To get even more specific on it, what therapists are worrying about now that we're in 2021 and the world looks completely different than when most of us started this field? What I believe is a huge misnomer in our field is that as therapists, like we don't really worry about anything in terms of our clients. So when we were thinking about doing this topic, so many things came up, of course, but one of the things that came up just as like an aside is that I actually do worry about my clients sometimes, like after I've had tough sessions with several of my clients, or if I'm, you know, working with couples and maybe they had a tough week and it was hard to sort of resolve a lot of the issues in the session, some of that lingers outside of therapy. And I do think about them and feel, you know, my compassion and concern for them. Absolutely. I would even add that I still worry about clients or I I worry about ex-clients that, you know, have, have moved on and whether it's because, we haven't been able to to see each other anymore because they were at a point where they were done with therapy. I still think about them too. That's so true. I have those moments where I think about former clients or it just sort of randomly comes up in my mind. And I always wonder like, how are they doing? Are they okay? Those questions definitely pop up. I know we have such a weird job title. I think the field itself makes you feel like, I mean, it is that way. You can't really backtrack when it comes to former clients. And I mean, there's, of course, a healthy level of disconnection. We can't mm-hmm. think about every single client after every session will go crazy. But sometimes, you know, we will have those very challenging sessions or those incredibly meaningful sessions. And the thought will pop up, you know, I wonder how they're doing or are they okay? Mm -hmm. And I would even add too, you know, for those therapists that work with the higher risk clients, like clients that have maybe safety issues, like the suicidal thoughts or the self-injurious behaviors. I imagine it's really hard to disconnect from that because it's like, you're also just concerned about their safety Mm -hmm. and their well-being. Interestingly enough, when I kind of do like a self-check, those are the clients that I do find myself thinking about, even if they are former clients. It's almost like my curiosity can't stop there because I feel for them on such a deep level. It's it's hard not to think about it. Jenna, I want to ask, how do you feel like you cope with worrying about your clients or finding yourself thinking about your clients after sessions? That is a good question. I have to remind myself that I'm there to support, I'm there to provide skills and tools, I'm there to assist with how they're coping, and it cannot be my responsibility to fix. I know that often our clients like put that responsibility on us sometimes, and that's another misnomer in that it's not something that we really have to fix. It depends on if they use the coping skills that they learn in therapy, or if they use the feedback or recommendations that are offered in therapy. 
that's really the most that we can do. And then it's just up to the people to decide, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. Or, you know, they don't. I hear you. It's almost like we have to have a little faith that the work that we've been working on is going to take root. And if it doesn't, then you just have more content to work on, you know, in subsequent sessions. But it's difficult to be able to say, like, I know that the work that we've worked on will be helpful if it's implemented and then to just let it be. And almost like, you know, you have to have faith that they're going to fly off and, and that those wings will flop. I love that. Let it be. And, you know, the other clients, for example, with couples, I've had situations where couples in sessions have decided that they're going to break up or they're going to get a divorce. I'm good about this. I don't do the thing of, you know, blaming myself or I couldn't save them. Again, that's not our responsibility. I wholeheartedly, you know, respect their decision but it is hard to see the the couple suffering in that way because that decision is a very hard decision. I really do my best to not take it on as my goal to save because that's, first of all, that's incredibly codependent. And secondly, it's just not healthy for me to carry that burden or for really any therapist to carry that burden. Absolutely. Would you say that that got easier for you you know, the longer you were a therapist, because I imagine there are new therapists listening and wondering, oh my goodness, when is this feeling going to go away? For me, I think it started to go away quickly because the first couple of years I was working with very high risk clients and populations. And I think you have to learn really quickly to disengage and not have that because it's so easy to fall into that codependent pattern, like you said. And so I think that population actually helped me rather than pulling me into it. But would you say that it got easier as you became a therapist, you know, for those who may be wondering who are just starting out and thinking if this is always how it's going to be for them? Yes, it was really hard. I would say the first year after grad school, I had my superhero cape on (laughs) that first year. It didn't help that I started my career working with children. So I'd have a lot of these parents come in and say, Jenna, can you just fix my kid (laughs) and place that responsibility and burden on me? And you wouldn't? (laughs) Gosh, Janet. I know. I know. I'm only with the kid an hour a week. (laughs) You can definitely do miracles within an hour a week with a child. Hardly. (laughs) But after that first year, I burnt out, I burnt out super quickly. And after that, I just had this talk with my supervisor at the time and just realized that I can't do that. I can't carry that burden. It's not Mm -hmm. my responsibility. It's the responsibility of the client. And in that case, with the children, big responsibility was on their parents or their caregivers. That really saved me because I realized that I can't do miracles necessarily. Again, I'm very straightforward. I provide tools. I provide skills. I offer feedback. I offer recommendations and just alternative ways of looking at things and and dealing with things. And that's a lot of what we do. That really helped just not only to disconnect, but to take care of myself and just to have healthy expectations as my role as a therapist. Yeah. And that's, that's something that definitely hones in after some time. I actually really think that was a perfect segue into burnout 
Because that's definitely something that you worry as a therapist, no matter what stage you're in. I think when you're starting off, there's a lot of, I would say, you know, um, more seasoned therapists that constantly warn you to look out for burnout. Everyone tells you that left, right, center, wherever you're going. And I don't think anyone really tells you how to look out for it. And even though as therapists, we're kind of you know, we're, we're used to being a little bit self-reflective and we do a lot of check-ins with ourselves, but I find that therapists don't realize that they're burning out until they, they're they already burnt out and it's a little bit too late. So I think that's also a little bit of a topic that generally comes up when we talk about what our concerns are as therapists. There are so many trainings on therapist burnout, compassion, fatigue, vicarious trauma. It's a real thing. I remember the first time I heard about burnout was actually in grad school when a lot of our professors and facilitators would always say like, take care of yourself, have healthy boundaries. You're going to burn out if you don't. And I just remember, again, I had that superhero cape on and I was like, burnout, what are we talking about? I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> and lo and behold, I completely burnt out. Well, so and then quickly. you get thrown into an agency setting, you know, completing mm-hmm. your hours or if you decide to continue with them. And I don't want to talk down on any setting because they're there for reasons and they help so many people, but it's almost like the perfect storm for burnout for associates interns because there's such a high demand for help. And the burnout, if we're talking about This last year and going into 21, it's even more real because we're going through the same issues that all of our clients are going through with this pandemic and the political climate, the racial climate going on. We're not only seeing it in our sessions as clients are talking about it, but it's in our own lives. We consume the news as well. We consume media. I just noticed myself three months into the pandemic, completely burnt out that I needed to take a vacation because it was just becoming too much to talk about COVID every single day, Mm -hmm. every single client, every session, it became a lot. Absolutely. And we're still in the same boat. And I think the conversation has shifted a little bit and it's almost like this thing that no one talks about, but is always there. And there's this different feeling of fatigue and burnout. You don't even have anything to specifically pinpoint it on, but there is this general lack of motivation, right? And it's so difficult to do any of the things that you normally do at the speed and enthusiasm that we do it in including going to sessions, being a therapist, or just even showing up as a human in day-to-day life. I've actually seen, which is great, a lot of therapists open up the conversation on how they're managing the burnout of 2020 and 2021. I've noticed a lot of therapists reducing their client caseload, a lot of therapists that are maybe having some boundaries with regards to the media and with regards to the news. Some therapists are taking certain types of cases that maybe aren't as challenging versus taking on some of the more challenging cases. So I am glad that people are doing what they have to do to do better and survive, but it is the burnout thing is real. Mm -hmm. I think one positive I've taken away from it this year is that I think in any other time, if a therapist or someone in an important working position were to do that, there's a lot of judgment and shame that comes with it in being able to like step back and take care of yourself. But I think there is this universal agreement that we all need this. And I've found that judgment less and less. 
I agree with that. I agree that everyone has been, for the most part, very supportive. If let's say I reached out to one of these therapist forum groups and said, I need to cut down my caseload, who's open for some referrals. I don't really see people shaming for that yeah. because it's like, if our sweet spot right now is 10 clients a week, then it's 10 clients a week. And that's what we have to do. And it's really refreshing to see that. I think there was a little bit of that increase in that judgment before, and it's really nice to see people just relaxing with it, actually. I think like on top of that, new therapists or maybe individuals just finishing their programs this year, I think it's a good example for them too, to be able to step back a little bit and to see like, okay, nothing is in our control. There can be this random giant global pandemic that comes around and how do we navigate that? How does anyone navigate that? And really what last year taught us is no one has the answers. You just kind of have to go with the flow sometimes. 2020 was the lesson in adaptation, which we've all really had to learn that lesson. And when we're talking about things to worry about from my time last year was, you know, when we had to all make the shift from seeing clients in the office to seeing clients virtually. Luckily, I was already virtual, but I had so much compassion for the therapists that had not set up virtual counseling before, had not done anything like that, didn't have a home office. I had a lot of compassion for those therapists that had to make that switch last year without any kind of preparation. When I think about what are some of the other things that I worry about, there was, of course, as we are doing everything online and using technology, of course, there's that worry of, okay, is the technology going to work today? <laughs> is my internet going to work today? Are my clients going to like Zoom? Is it going to be feasible for them? How are my clients going to find privacy if they live with other people and do their therapy with that safety of the confidentiality? So there was a lot of that. All of us therapists had to navigate this last year. I could go on the longest rant about that right now if you know, someone let me, but I would agree. I mean, those, those are concerns that I've had even before I was forced to move everything to a more telehealth setting. It's just things that I think you don't really need to worry about as much when you're doing in-person therapy. Like how often do you worry about the connection of your internet speed and making sure that you don't leave a client hanging or making sure that you hear every word that they say in case there's a little bit of a disconnection and cutoff. And Yes, like getting interrupted or having things happen around the home because it's not a controlled setting. When you're in an office, you're secluded for the most part. You know that that's your setting. You're never going to get interrupted unless there's some wacko emergency going on. And you don't have to worry about something like that. But when you're at home, you might have someone who lives with you interrupt you, or you might have a package get delivered that you have to get up and sign for. And I think these are all things that people naturally knew and maybe had decided that, okay, telehealth isn't for me. And maybe they didn't go into that. And like you said, a lot of people got thrown into it forcibly. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you were sympathetic about it because you, you had done it before, right? And it was something that you grew comfortable into. I couldn't imagine having to move all my clients to telehealth, like over the course of a week and not be prepared. I mean, that 
I remember that week for a lot of therapists were incredibly chaotic. I'm part of a lot of therapist Google groups and forums. And just, it was like every five minutes, there was a question. How do I do this? What type of technology do I need? What type of liability insurance do I need? There was a lot of questions. So that period I remember was tough. So I do have a lot of compassion for the therapist that just had to swing this without any kind of support or preparation. Mm -hmm. On a brighter note, I think a lot of therapists have found that they actually enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I've heard so many therapists say, I love doing telehealth. I love that I have a little bit more flexibility and comfort to work wherever I want to work from. And I've even heard many go as far as saying, I might move my whole practice over to telehealth. Two very different sides of the coin there. I've heard so many therapists say, I gave up my office space. Mm -hmm. I no longer have my regular office space. I'm now doing 100% telehealth. And that's amazing. I'm glad because before, let's say, you know, you're in LA, your reach was LA, right? Mm -hmm. Which is obviously a big city. But now your reach is all of California because you can work with any California resident. And so I love that aspect of transitioning to 100% telehealth because you're not just focused on the people necessarily in your community or your city, but you can actually reach people in your entire state if you wanted to. Yeah. And to be honest, I think that really just speaks to the adaptability and resilience of our field. It doesn't always feel like that. We always get told that it's a very shaky field and we don't know what will go on with it as the years go by. But time and time again, therapists show that they can overcome these situations and still provide for their clients. What else? What else do you feel like when you think about this subject? What else do you worry about? So right now we're at different stages of of being therapists, you and I, obviously. So I think this might actually be a different episode topic, but, you know, I've been thinking about all these issues and like lack of answers that come up when trying to start a new practice. Maybe part of that is almost easier because we've all moved into telehealth and, you know, there's a little bit of bypassing those other steps that you would have to do when finding an office space to rent and and all of these things. But I think there's a lack of information in our community of the proper steps to take to build a legal, comfortable, and kind of like set for success practice. And you almost have to be, you. I mean, as a therapist, you have to wear many hats. And I think one of them when starting a practice is you absolutely have to find a business hat and you have to be able to dig for that information. And I don't think, at least in the LA County, you get you can get a lot of that information from fellow therapists, but it's not easy to find information from our boards or, you know, the county and the city because it's so, it's just, it feels hidden. Well, that's the thing. That's a limitation, especially in our grad school programs. And if I could go back, I'd probably do a dual, like a therapy program and a business program. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, just to start a practice, it's like trial and error or asking around your colleagues as to what you do or what you need. It's gotten better. I mean, a lot of therapists 
that are very business savvy. They've created checklists. There are even programs that you can purchase that you can do like a self-paced thing to figure out how to open up your private practice. But you're right. That is a limitation. Mm -hmm. I would say that a lot of grad schools are not offering at this point and they really should be. Mm -hmm. So there is that level of anxiety. What do I do? Right. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. My grad school program had a class specifically titled building your private practice. Oh, amazing. And I had zero answers from it. Really? So I think their intentions were fantastic. And I think if done correctly, I would 100% time and time again, recommend it because the concept of the class was genius and it was perfect. And every single one of us walked out of that class thinking, so what were we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And I was actually talking about this with four of my friends who graduated with me, talking about it with them a couple of weeks ago. And we all kind of agreed that even though the class was meant to give us all those answers and to provide those checklists, it really didn't. And that part feels, I mean, it just feels like a further limitation there. Well, I'm curious if you didn't get your questions answered, what was, what was the class? Yeah. It almost felt like they did everything to try and answer the questions without actually providing the answers. And we did a lot of build a five-year plan and what would you want your business to look like and what would be your ideal practice vision? And I think those are all very important questions to answer. I think as therapists are going through their grad school program, going through their practicum, they need to start thinking about who's my ideal client? What do I want my workday to look like? And all these questions, right? But you might find the answers to all those questions and still not know like, okay, well, I'm settling in California. I'm settling in LA County, wherever you are. How do I actually start the practice? Mm-hmm. But For a lot of us, I think the difficulty, if you don't have that business hat is, well, how do I get there in the first place? A lot of it is just even what do I need to know in terms of renting office space Mm -hmm. or which accountant to talk to? Mm -hmm. How do I set up my practice? So it's a lot of that business information and tax information, office information that perhaps was missing. Right. And if you go into the field a little bit naive, you kind of don't know all these things. You don't know, well, do I need a city business license? Do I need to have a lawyer that handles all of my paperwork, my professional will? How am I allowed to incorporate their big differences? And depending on the state that you're in and and your job title, can you have an LLC? Can you have an S Corp? And these answers are really difficult for people to find when that that's not what the school programs are specifically created to teach you, mm-hmm. which is a shame because the program is essentially created to make you an effective therapist. You can't be an effective therapist if you can't effectively start a business. hundred percent agree with that. There needs to be that level of confidence. Absolutely. Well, that is a vulnerability that I believe a lot of new therapists in the field can relate to. You mentioned confidence. And I think for me, like one of the last main facets of things that therapists worry about is imposter syndrome. Yes. Does that ever go away? I don't think so. No. (laughs) And I think that's what we want. I think a lot of us want to just feel that relief of, oh my God, I have no worries. I have nothing that I'm feeling impostery about. And I agree. I don't think it goes away. 
I think it just evolves. Right. Because when I think about experiences that I've had with imposter syndrome, it was, for example, the very first time I sat with a client or the first time I worked with a couple or the first time I facilitated a presentation. So for me, a lot of it's related to like my first times in the field. Do I feel confident in my knowledge and also in my effectiveness to convey this knowledge or to offer support to clients. So I agree for me, depends on every stage of career that I fall into that I absolutely see that imposter syndrome. Yep. And I love that flexibility that you've taken on though, because if you know that when you do approach a first or a new situation, then you almost don't get thrown off balance. And you've had those experiences where, yep, this feeling is familiar and it will change. I won't always feel like this, Mm -hmm. but I completely agree with you. What I really think the imposter syndrome is, is am I effective or am I good enough? That's really, for me at least, the underlying to the imposter syndrome. I think this part that you don't even worry about like how you look in the things that you're not feeling confident about. It's, am I helping or just leaving my client with more questions than they came in with, which isn't always a bad thing. Leaving them wondering is sometimes effective and having them have this self-discovery moment, but you want to be effective. You don't want to sit there and only leave them more confused. And I would say for me too, the imposter syndrome has come up in the other professional situations, most recently, not in 2020, but in 2019, when we could all see people, (laughs) I presented to a group of social workers in my area about sex therapy. It was, it was around how to talk about sex with clients. And man, these social workers had been in the field for like 20, 30, some of them even 40 years. So they were incredibly knowledgeable and had a lot of wonderful experience working with individuals and working with clients. And here I am compared to that, a very new therapist out in the field in my own practice since 2019. And I thought to myself, what are they going to get out of my presentation if they've worked in the field for 40 years. And I realized, look, even if they know or have all of this information in their experience, at the very least, what I can do is to remind these social workers Mm -hmm. of what they can offer in their client sessions, or I can get them to start thinking about a new concept, get their, their thoughts swirling. And that actually helped me in the imposter syndrome in the moment to realize that it's not just about like the information that I know, but it's about the impression that I leave with these colleagues of mine. For sure. If they felt like they knew everything or didn't want a new perspective or a refresh, they wouldn't have came. That's true. You're great at sharing information. So regardless of the topic, people should be listening. Thank you for that. You know, the moral of of that story is even though you feel that imposter syndrome, no matter what field you're in or what the situation is, my motto is just do it anyway, because Mm -hmm. even if you completely mess up or embarrass yourself, at least you tried, you got it out of the way and you don't have to feel that imposter syndrome anymore after that. It really is a great learning experience. Even more so, if you are feeling that, do not be afraid of being open to learning more or asking questions or turning to people who 
may have experienced that as well and seeing how they approached it because gosh, this field, you never stop learning. I would say another thing that I've tried with the imposter syndrome is just calling it out. So I didn't necessarily do it in that presentation, but looking back, I could have totally said, hi everyone, I'm Janet. I'll be presenting on this today. I also need you guys to know that I'm very nervous right now and my imposter syndrome is coming up. And I feel like just calling it out in the room right there like that actually reduces the intensity of it. I was in a room with social workers, so I'm Mm -hmm. sure they could have offered me empathy and support. For sure. You can totally do that too. Just call it out and, and reduce the power of it. I love that. I love that because it's such a helpful reminder that can be used in all situations, whether you're in class giving a presentation or you're giving a presentation in front of a field of professionals or going for a job interview, whatever it might be, that approach is amazing. I want to share one other thing, getting solicitations on my social media. And the reason why I say that is because it's already happened for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So let me give you some background. Some of the work that I do, as you guys just heard, is I do sex therapy and there are many facets to it. The specific facet that I work on with clients is, you know, how to improve intimacy, how to get to, you know, your highest potential in your relationship, or if you're having problems like low libido, or you're just not feeling into it or attracted to your partner in your relationship, a lot of it is centered around that work. On my social media, on my website, it says, you know, also offering sex therapy and I explain what I do. I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've certainly talked with other sex therapists in the field. We get the weirdest messages Mm -hmm. and DMs on Instagram and just the weirdest calls. I've had the weirdest calls throughout my career. And I have to tell you, I've learned to deal with it, but I absolutely hate it. I don't blame you. I think you're stuck in the situation where you have to learn to deal with it, right? Because it's something that you've found, you know, no matter what you do, you can't combat that. You are on social media. The job title in and of its own, I think, confuses a lot of people and Mm -hmm. almost creates this like false idea that something like that is okay. Mm-hmm. but no part of that means that you should be okay with that and or even think that like okay well yes i have to put up with it because i i do receive it but no one should have to have to deal with that let alone not enjoy it isn't the word what's the opposite of hating it i've had to actually set boundaries i'm sort of leaving a lot to the imagination here but i'll just call it out so i've gotten dick pics On social media, I've gotten people sending, you know, just very inappropriate messages. So you guys can only imagine this this happening to a lot of, particularly women, I would Mm -hmm. say, but I'm sure it can happen with men as well who are also in the field. And I don't want it to be shaming because these individuals need support in learning how to set boundaries within themselves and also need support in learning how to utilizing that sexual energy in just a more appropriate manner. Cause I never want to shame individuals for, you know, let's say having their sexual urges, but the thing is it has to involve consenting individuals. And I'm a non-consenting individual on my Instagram and just in life in general, you don't need to send me dick pics. 
What I would say is how I've really handled it, and you've actually helped me with this, Susie, is to set boundaries on my social media. So I've had disclaimers that are on my highlights that you can read, which says, you know, don't test boundaries on social media. And in addition, some of these messages that I can tell are heading in an inappropriate direction. I just don't respond to them anymore. Social media is, is it's still the wild west with all of that. And I love how you've been able to reinterpret that need for boundaries because I think that takes a very big person to do so. Again, I don't want to judge anyone for, you know, how they want to spend their intimate time, but at the same time, you know, it's it's not your right to try to perpetrate on me. So that's just another thing that's come up. So I'm very selective on, you know, my social media on, you know, what I look at and what I don't look at in terms of people messaging me. And for the most part, if you try to message me on my social, I may not respond because I'm not sure. So it's best to actually contact me through my website. And I'm sure for you as well, just so that we know legitimately, let's say needing our counseling services or one Mm -hmm. consultation, stuff like that. Yeah, I would say, unfortunately, I do feel like sex therapists have a higher prevalence of receiving that because people do see it and they automatically think, oh, this is almost like an open door for me to to have this, you know, expression or release or approach to how I approach this person. And I do think it's unfortunate, but I do want to add you, and this is probably something that people can head over to your social media highlights. I think they're in your highlights to take a look. You have very clearly defined your role as a therapist on social media. And I think those boundaries, like you said, are so important because it's one of those things you don't really think about when you're beginning social media as a therapist, but Mm -hmm. you, you really need to have those. And it doesn't mean that people will always read them or abide by them, but you making your boundaries clear and you following through, like you said, by not responding and not engaging in inappropriate conversations is very important. And so for a lot of the, the new therapists out there, again, this is something that possibly you haven't learned in grad school and you're bored for your license or your potential license may not have information as to how to handle, let's say these messages on social media. So it is recommended that, you know, do your own research and identify what kind of boundaries that you want in terms of the social media space that you need. I promise you, you'll feel much more confident and successful in the social media space as a therapist. So one of the highlights that I do have as well is indicating that Instagram is not therapy, that any communication or non-communication via Instagram does not constitute a therapeutic relationship. So again, we do that because Instagram and any type of social media, TikTok, Facebook, a lot of the information that you see, it's really for educational purposes. It's not really for you to, to use because some of the advice and feedback may apply to you that you see on social media and maybe it doesn't apply to you. So it's important to be very selective. And if you are working with a therapist and have questions about it, it's important for you to bring it up in your sessions so that you're able to discern if the information that you do see on social media is for you or not for you. Would you say that these experiences have 
made you at times regret being a therapist on social media? I mean, in those moments, getting solicitations like that, they're certainly not comfortable. I know I'm laughing or giggling about it right now. Again, not because I liked it, but because like, I just have to laugh at it at this Mm -hmm. point, because it's just never in my career did I think I would be dealing with something like that. I don't regret it. It's just prior to starting my social media, I wish that I had the education and the understanding of setting boundaries from the get-go or grad programs and places like that, that should be preparing new clinicians need to include information like this. I selfishly hope that our podcast episodes serve for those conversations and for those answers, whether it's engaging with us and asking about like how our experiences have been with stuff like that or how we would have done it. But I do think having the knowledge going into it that this is a possibility and to have these safety measures and factors set into place like those boundaries is really important. And I don't want this conversation to scare people off on being a therapist on social media because I really do think the the modern approach is really taking it in such a nice, beautiful direction. I think that's thanks to the social media. And Yes, it's it's terrifying to think you might be getting, you know, unsolicited conversations or even the scariness of like, how do I present myself as a therapist? This is a lot of work that I have to constantly be engaging on. I don't want those things to scare people away because I think this is opening the field up to people and really destigmatizing and taking the scariness factor of therapy away from us. I agree with that. Because it's a beautiful place to share resources. I mean, some of the therapists that I even follow on Instagram, they have amazing resources Mm -hmm. and amazing information. Again, consult with your therapist if you want to talk about it. Don't necessarily take it for face value. But a lot of the information that I see is gold. It's just a beautiful space to connect with other therapists. It's a beautiful space to share resources. So I agree with that. Don't necessarily shy away from it. Mm -hmm. But you can also figure out what your boundaries are. You can figure out how to deal with your own countertransference, learn what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And I had to learn, like, I'm just not going to respond to messages like that. Right. So therapists wanting to start social media approach with caution, (laughs) but approach. Yes. Lean into it. And actually there are some great therapists on Instagram that offer courses on how to be a modern therapist, how to start your social media at Dr. Cassidy is great. She has a great course for modern therapists. Mm -hmm. Sit with Wit. She's a therapist in South Florida that also has an amazing course for therapists. So I do highly recommend that you do your research. Take these semi-modern approaches to the field. So with that, That's some of the stuff that we as modern therapists worry about, but we want to know what do you all worry about in your field? Follow us on social media. I'm on Instagram at therapy with Janet B. I'm at sessions with Susie and I would love to hear whether it's from seasoned therapists or newcomers, what are some of the things that you find yourself worrying about the field, whether it's in an agency setting, in a private practice setting, let's talk about the worries. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye. Bye.